This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. The Calliopeia Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. To learn more, visit Calliopea.org. Hey, For the Wild listeners, Ayana here. I wanted to take a moment to tell you that we are proud to have the support of the sweet city of Bend, Oregon, which occupies land belonging to the Wasco, Tenino, and Paiute tribes. I remember the first time I visited Bend, Oregon, I was just completely enraptured by this place nestled between high desert plains and swaths of forest amidst the Cascade Range. Bend is home to incredible autumn colors of aspen, soft purple, lupin-filled springs, and strong riparian habitat that nourishes native sockeye. Of course, these abundant lands are almost always vulnerable to exploitative tourism. And Bend, Oregon takes this seriously, which is why Bend is a proud member of Pledge for the Wild a group of mountain towns that support responsible tourism through the preservation of land. For the Wild wants to remind our listeners that enjoying nature through outdoor recreation and exploration requires responsibility. If you're going to travel and explore outdoor places, we hope you look into towns that are supporting their local economy, respecting the land, and caring for their service and industry workers. If you're in the area, consider supporting and visiting one of my favorite destinations, Bend, Oregon, and help protect the land by giving back at pledgewildbend.com. Again, learn more at pledgewildbend.com. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today you will be hearing a conversation with Jade Begay and Julian Brave Noisecat, recorded at the Bioneers Conference. Jade Begay is a filmmaker, communications strategist, impact producer, and climate justice activist. Jade's work explores indigenous futurism, inclusion, and representation in the media landscape. Jade has partnered with organizations like Resource Media, United Nations Universal Access Project, 350.org, Indigenous Environmental Network, Sierra Club, Bioneers, Indigenous Climate Action, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, allied media projects and tribal nations from the Arctic to the Amazon to create content, develop strategies, and storytelling campaigns to mobilize and create more engagement around these urgent, complex, and sensitive issues of our time. Jade is also the creative director at NDN Collective, an indigenous-led organization that builds indigenous power through decolonizing the world of philanthropy and creates direct funding opportunities for indigenous and native communities. Julian Brave Noisecat is director of Green New Deal Strategy at Data for Progress, a think tank, and narrative change director with the Natural History Museum. He is a correspondent for Real America with Jorge Ramos and contributing editor for Canadian Geographic. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Nation, The Paris Review, and many other publications. Ayana here from For the Wild. We are live at Bioneers 2019 with some pretty lovely folks. One of my very besties, Jade Begay, who is joining us today, and Julian Brave Noise Cat. And I think because we're here sitting next to these uh, seabirds on this pond that we'll just jump right into it. Let's jump into the Green New Deal first to orient ourselves, and I want to hear both of your critiques, your interest in it, and how you think it can shift our current predicament. Um, so I guess I'll just back up and just explain 
what the Green New Deal is. The Green New Deal is a progressive climate platform that aims to take on the twin crises of climate change and inequality in tandem. It has been crystallized most firmly in the form of a resolution that was introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey uh, back in February. And its sort of broader policy planks are still being written. So I work at a think tank called Data for Progress, uh, and we put out a blueprint for a Green New Deal over a year ago in September 2018. And we're still working with a broad array of movement actors and experts and politicians to sort of develop what these sort of really wide array of legislative actions could be under a Green New Deal. Let's talk about those legislative actions a little bit more. Can you break that down for us? Um, it's hard to break down. So I guess there, you know, there's like a lot of different sectors in the economy that uh, contribute to emissions. And if we are serious about decarbonizing on the timeline set forward by the IPCC, which um, one of the big, I think it's important for people to understand that one of the big things that happened is that Last October, the UN put forward its 1.5 degrees Celsius report, which, if we recall, the Paris Agreement was a 2 degrees Celsius agreement. So one of the things that happened is that people saw that report, saw what the projections were scientifically about where we're headed and the difference between a 1.5 and a 2 degrees Celsius world. And everybody started actually to revise their sort of policy positions about the, the speed at which we need to de decarbonize in order to avoid the two degrees Celsius, or sorry, to, to try to like hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. So one of the things that really actually happened is that like the goalposts shifted towards more ambition. And that in a lot of ways is sort of the political and like expert context in which the Green New Deal arrived. And, you know, in order to, you know, meet the the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees Celsius said that we need to basically cut emissions in half by 2030, which uh, is how you get, I think a lot of people will have remet, recalled the um, we have 12 years sort of line that a lot of people were putting forward. That's where that originated. And then the IPCC report said globally, we need to fully reach net zero emissions by 2050, which if you think about like all the different ways in which our economy produces emissions would be an incredible undertaking to, to achieve that. So not only do we need to change, I think most people will think about the energy sector and the way in which we get power. There's a seagull who just landed right next to us. He has some thoughts about this. Um, not only do we need to change the way in we, which we get power, another huge source of emissions is the transportation sector, uh, which is going to be particularly unruly and difficult to decarbonize in the U.S. because everybody owns a car, and our entire sort of urban planning and the way in which we've built cities and and in co entire economies and regions is rooted in highways and and um, automobile infrastructure so that's going to be a significant challenge those two in combination actually it's worth worth adding that um, if we do switch to electric vehicles not only are we going to have to decarbonize the existing power sector that we have but you also have to add all of the capacity that will be required to charge electric vehicles so in essence, not only do you have to reach like 100% clean energy, you actually also have to grow the amount of energy that you're producing because everybody's going to be plugging their car into the grid to get, you know, energy to drive to work or whatever. So that's going to be an enormous task. In addition, we have to decarbonize or wring emissions out of the agricultural sector, the way in which we heat and put appliances into buildings, we're going to have to change that because a lot of that is built around natural gas. Uh, so we're going to have to basically electrify everything, buildings, housing. And there's also a lot of different interventions that we're going to have to make with regards to manufacturing and industry. So there are really key industrial processes that are carbon intensive. So the production of concrete, 
the production of steel, like a lot of these different sort of really bedrock manufacturing processes need to change. And then there's also like broader things that knit all that together, like land use planning, you know, conservation of existing sort of carbon sinks and like wildlife areas and all that sort of stuff that we're going to need to maintain and potentially even grow to, you know, get all that carbon out of the atmosphere. So when you really sort of look at the the whole elephant, which I think is what the Green New Deal pushes us to do, the scale of the task and the number and permutations of things that have to change are are quite remarkable. And of course, it's important to keep in mind also that even if we did enact a Green New Deal next year or 2021, it's not like you get to reverse climate change. It's not like you reverse warming or it stops, right? There's already feedback mechanisms and uh, emissions and carbon in the atmosphere that would continue to heat the planet for the next coming decades and, and years. And so it is really a, a pretty challenging context. But I think one of the points of hope that the Green New Deal points to is that when we do all of these interventions into how we make things, into the infrastructure, into you know clean energy, that we can produce a lot of jobs and actually sort of achieve a more just and equitable democracy. This is sort of the notion of a just transition. Um, so on the one hand, we have a lot of work to do, but actually if we do that work in a, in a good way, in a fair way, in an equitable way, in a democratic way, it could actually produce a lot of good as well. One thing that sends a... Maybe a red flag is the right word, is this idea of an entirely new infrastructure setup. Because to transition us into this Green New Deal, there seems to be a lot of resources to transition everything. And a lot of resources in connecting the infrastructure of a new energy program. Like, I set up solar panels in an off-the-grid little cabin that I do the podcast out of usually, and just seeing what it took to get water to my cabin, seeing what it took to actually set up a very small solar system, the amount of resources that takes is actually quite unbelievable. And so I want to hear from you, Jade, some of the things that we need to really understand, as this bird understands, <laughs> they're really, you know, calling us right now into this conversation, is <laughs> let's talk about the side that isn't so flashy about the Green New Deal. I want to hear your thoughts on just the immense amount of resource extraction that will have to happen in order to transition us into a different type of way of using energy. And then also, you know, Julian brought up the narrative of the 12 years. And I wonder... <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, it's funny. And, yeah, I wonder how... <laughs> I wonder how this urgent narrative is playing into how we're setting up systems. Because when we feel like we only have a decade left, as this bird clearly knows... <laughs> Then what? <laughs> okay, I don't want to throw anything at you, bird, but <laughs> because I respect you, I really do. <laughs> it's all just a big joke for Mr. Crow. So, <laughs> so the question is, let's talk about. <laughs> The other side of this infrastructure debacle and how the narrative of 12 years and that urgency might be shifting our the way that we go about it. Okay, we're going to friendly ask this bird to go party somewhere else. You joined the wrong party, bird. <laughs> Ayana's currently... <laughs> Talking with this crow or this raven. <laughs> he was really persistent and stubborn, apparently. There you go. <laughs> okay, so we're at Bioneers, and the way that the conference is set up is when you enter the indigenous forum is at the very front of the conference it's it's right there when you enter the the conference grounds and i think 
So they've placed the Indigenous Forum at the front, which is really, I think, a beautiful thing. Um, This conference is about environmental, social change and justice and, and highlighting the leaders who are bringing all of that forth. But they have done, thanks to the work of people like Cara Romero and Alexis Budin, um, the two people who direct the indigeneity program here at Bioneers, yeah, they've centered the knowledge and wisdom that needs, and not just centered it, put it in the front. I think if we're talking about the Green New Deal, the same thing needs to happen. And that's kind of the approach that my organization, the NDN Collective, has taken on this. We've developed a Green New Deal position paper that actually Julian edited, and I'll let him talk about that and his thoughts on that. But that document really underscores the fact that we need to, in order to bring in a just transition that is just for all communities, including indigenous, because like you said, if we're going to replace fossil fuels with solar panels, where are those minerals coming from? They're coming from Brazil. Um, they're coming from lands that are uh, within the territories of various indigenous communities globally. So, yeah, we need to incorporate those those things into the way we're going to foster in this just transition eventually. And... Yeah, within that position paper, like Julian was saying, the IPC has given us this 12 years thing. Well, in also the last couple of years, they've acknowledged finally that indigenous knowledge is key for mitigating, adapting, and dealing with the climate crisis. They've really put an emphasis on that in the last year, I believe. And so again, just our stance as the NDN Collective is that we're in a really unique position right now to inform the Green New Deal to be thinking of these things and incorporating indigenous knowledge and wisdom and traditional ecological knowledge in a bold way, um, not just to mitigate and, and manage the climate crisis, but also into building these solutions. Uh, so the IPCC published a trilogy of reports and is now going to be silent until after the 2020 election, which is actually going to be a big sort of communications backstory of the way that the climate conversation rolls for the next year or so. And the second paper in that trilogy was their lands paper, uh, in which they talked about the different challenges that we're going to face in providing agriculture in a climate strand context in protecting and creating carbon sinks. And they did a number of different projection scenarios for different combinations of those actions. And the big picture takeaway, reading between the lines, was that to a large extent, different conflicts and scarcities over resources are going to be like pretty much inevitable. And there will be trade-off decisions that we're going to have to make in terms of how we use lands and resources and who has access to them and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, of course, is like Native people, like the whole history of this continent and of modernity is in large part one of us losing everything and and people taking. While I think the critique of the transition to a clean or renewable energy economy you know, is an important one. Like, obviously, we, we have real no real choice but to, but to take action. Like, the no-action scenario is pretty unconscionable. I think it's also important to just be, like, pretty realistic about the real issues that, are, that already exist in that transition. So, for example, uh, I was just in Chibougamou, Quebec, which is in northern Quebec, uh, which has been a mining-based economy for the last 100 years or so. Um, and the current story in that part of Quebec, which is where there's a number of Cree communities that have been impacted by mining, is now that there's a lot of Chinese investment coming in to do lithium mining, because lithium is obviously a very important mineral for batteries. And if we're going to sh- shift to renewable energy, we're going to need more lithium to make those batteries. 
And the other reason why it's happening in northern Quebec is that there's now potential for a shipping terminal to go in in northern Quebec because when the ice is melted, there will be a fast shipping lane from northern Quebec to China, uh, which is going to be, you know, there's 1.4 billion Chinese people in the world, which means that their middle class is about four times the size of the American middle class. Their elite is four times the size of the American elite. There will be four times as many billionaires, at least, in China. And that's a lot of stuff at the end of the day that that group is going to demand and the world is going to demand. And so the story for the Cree in northern Quebec is going to be to a certain extent, a lot more of the same, right? The mining will continue. Um, there's not going to be so much of a transition. It's just going to be, it's not going to be gold anymore. It's, or iron. it's not going to be gold. It's going to be lithium. I mean, we need to be real about that. And then, you know, secondly, also, there's going to be continued siting issues. You know, basically, the narrative here is that we need to be very thoughtful about how we build out a renewable and clean energy grid, because a lot of the same siting issues that we've seen with pipelines could be perpetuated with transmission lines. So if you're going to have a grid that runs on renewable energy, you need to be able to balance out the places where the sun is shining and where it's not, where the wind is blowing, where it's not. And that means that you basically just need more connectivity regionally and nationally, uh, which means you need, need more transmission lines. And you know, as the tendency has been forever, pretty much, you know, the folks who are going to have those developments happen in their communities are going to be people of color, going to be working people, are going to be indigenous people. Um, and my take on this is that, like, you know, if, if a transmission line was being built through the Standing Rock communities, you know, ancestral grave sites, like, they would fight it just the same as, as, a, as a pipeline. And so I think that the way in which we think about land use, you know, community input on how we do these things, and power. I mean, really, at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to who has power and who doesn't. Those things are all going to be very relevant. And I think it's, you know, it's important to point out that, like, it's not like we pass a Green New Deal and it's like, you know, game over, we won, yay. You know, a lot of the same challenges that we face already in, in policymaking and, and socially, you know, where the jobs go, where the infrastructure goes who owns those things, all of that sort of stuff is going to remain relevant, if not even more, more uh, uh, prescient than it already is. I mean, the only thing I would just build on with that is that's one of the reasons why the NDN Collective exists, is to really scale up how we look at Indigenous power, I mean, that's our whole mission, building indigenous power through decolonizing philanthropy. And we actually use a lot of that data um, by the IPC, some of this 12-year narrative. But also, we have those narratives. We've, we've been talking about this, I mean, for so long. But, you know, if we want to say, like, in the movement space, at least since the 90s, about, you know, these predictions. And, and so that's what we're up to. We're, we're trying to really scale up the way we donate and give and fund and give resource and also power to indigenous communities so that they can more easily build the solutions that are working for their communities. I mean, we're, we totally believe that like the people closest to the pain know exactly what to do and we want to empower them, embolden them in having that self-determination and sovereignty to yeah, design what it is that will give them that power to navigate the transformations, the changes that we're seeing. I want to bring up my skepticism around just transition because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And, you know, Jade, you and I have gone through so many conferences, protests, events together where a just transition has been brought up time and time again. And when I first learned about it, I thought, okay, great. The frontline communities who are suffering the most should be in control of their own power transition they should be given power to own their own grids to be the bosses of the solar companies that are doing the work in those communities or whatever natural renewable energy source and I thought that made a lot of sense and then I was thinking about some of the folks we worked with down in Louisiana like Monique like Sharif Whitlin and I know they've talked about just transition a lot and so I'm thinking about them and then fast forward I'm driving up to Alaska I stop in British Columbia 
I meet up with Jacinda Mack, who was one of the founders of Native Women for Responsible Mining in British Columbia that was created or given a lot of energy into because of the Mount Polly mining tailings disaster, the biggest tailings pond disaster in the world. And the reason I'm bringing this up right now is because here I am in northern British Columbia where there's 2,000 plus abandoned mines, the biggest gold mining in the world. Um, a lot of this mining is for renewable energy. And so I'm like, but wait, Jacinda's ancestral lands don't get a just transition. Like her lands are being exploited, raped, poisoned, so that somebody else somewhere else can have a just transition. And so how do we wrestle with that? How do we wrestle with somebody who's still going to live in a sacrifice zone? There's this part of me that goes, are we still doing the same thing where some people will get the just transition and other people will live in the sacrifice zones so that some people can have renewables? I mean, it, that's, a, that's a really good question. It's a huge question. I wish I could tell you that there would not need to be any more mining, that there would we would find ways to build all the things without it going through someone's backyard or community or, you know, sacred site. But I also know that that's not true. And I think that, if anything, from my perspective, the reality that the decisions we make in policy and as a society about who benefits, who who are the winners and losers of different policies is always a relevant question. You know, who has health care? Who does not have health care? Where do we put, where are police stationed? Where are they not stationed? Where do we build military installations and where we don't? If anything, the fact that those are relevant questions, I think that that makes the conversation about you know, frontline communities, environmental justice communities, indigenous sovereignty, worker power, equity, justice, even more pressing because those decisions and who has power and representation and who doesn't are going to remain increasingly important in a society that is trying to transition on the one hand to clean and renewable energy to transform a lot of the ways in which we do things and on the other hand is going to face the constraints and impacts of and harm I should just like say it straightforwardly of warming and those include of course and we've seen this already in in Europe and elsewhere the fact that unfortunately you know climate induced migration is often accompanied by a rise in xenophobia and hate and that we're going to need to figure out ways that you know we justly bring in new people to societies that are already primed for that kind of reaction and backlash the fact that conflict over resources is going to become an increasingly common uh, thing and is already happening in many regions of the world uh, the fact that military conflict is going to become much more important the fact that we're going to have to relocate entire cities uh, and the way in which we do that sort of you know retreat from the shoreline is could either be you know more orderly or it could be more like Mad Max you know those are all really really relevant questions and I think and this is where like media and structure and uh, all those sorts of things come into play because who is at the table when we're discussing these sort of problems, who has the ear of lawmakers and people in power and who is in power when those things happen is going to make an enormous, enormous difference. And we've seen that, you know, throughout history, of course. Yeah, you actually took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, yeah, who's at the table? And um, I agree. My work is really in, involved in narrative change work. Um, I do a lot of storytelling work and really the mission or the goal with that work is to stop erasure and yeah really bring my folks indigenous people communities to these tables and so that's yeah that's kind of where I see my role fitting into this is by amplifying those voices amplifying our stories and holding like the IPC accountable when they say things like indigenous knowledge and wisdom is critical for how we navigate all of this. 
that there's accountability there and we really mean it and we put it into policies and we put it into even the conversations we have at conferences when we know like there's resources here to be given and shared and so yeah again just I think it Julian's right that it just depends on how we're deconstructing power systems and doing that institutionally systemically so that as we continue to figure how we deal with all of the changes that we'll be seeing that there's really important voices to say like this is not going to work for us and how can we create some balance in in this quote-unquote solution I would like to add, I guess, that there's like, this has kind of been a little downer or like realism conversation, but there are also sort of win-win, in my view, sort of scenarios here. Like there are, there are some places where we get to both empower the, the exact communities that we want to be empowered and fight climate change together and that there won't actually be necessarily like a clear zero-sum winner-loser type scenario. And in large part, that actually is coming out of the fact that Indigenous peoples have played, a, I would say, a disproportionately significant role in driving the climate conversation over the last 10, 20 years, maybe even more. I mean, the extent to which Indigenous movements have been fighting pipelines, have been calling attention more recently to the burning of the Amazon, you know, all of these sorts of things, we, you know, might only be a small portion of the overall population, but I'd say that actually in the ways in which we've been engaged on this, we've been a sort of leading voice, a leading community. And I think that's really important. The examples where we might actually be able to do, you know, do all things for all people are, I think most notably with, uh, to Jade's point about indigenous knowledge, you know, there are a lot of places in the world that are going to need to be protected and conserved as carbon sinks is sort of the ugly term we use. I think like more precisely just as like places that need to remain you know ecologically intact to absorb carbon to maintain ecosystems to do all that sort of work and already you know indigenous nations indigenous communities indigenous sovereignty indigenous rights are the mechanism through which you're actually going to be able to do that and people already are doing it uh, whether that be first nations in the great bear rainforest in canada or you know, indigenous communities in the Amazon or, you know, many different people throughout throughout the world. And that is an example, I would say, where Native people, indigenous people, the people who have been bearing the brunt of an extractive economy and pollution and all that sort of stuff can actually also be empowered through a transition. And so there are, I don't want to like be all gloomy and be like, oh, it's going to be a bunch of hard decisions. Like there are some actions that we can take that, um, that can be really uh, empowering for people. And actions like Rights of Nature, which is an indigenous-led model solution that does combat false solutions such as carbon offsetting. But I think before we jump to Rights of Nature conversations, we do still have so much groundwork on understanding what indigenous rights mean. I think because of just hundreds of years of erasure there's a really big gap in just the average person's understanding of what yeah what indigenous rights mean for for us i i think it's fair to say that people even our own people don't understand treaties and whether they're helpful or not and so i think there's still just a lot of education that needs to happen and that's the work that i'm really excited about doing and doing with NDN and our partners like Illuminative bringing this knowledge this research this education that most American children and people were not given giving that to them now so that we can have these bigger conversations about like how indigenous rights play a role in climate justice in the center of heaven Floating in space Spinning in circles The hunter and the chase Both show love for you Cause that's what feels true 
to ask you more about that Jade specifically because you're mentioning yeah there's these reports coming out they're saying we need to listen to indigenous people indigenous people hold 80% of the biodiversity in their lands you know we hear these yeah it's a buzzword and we hear it's a trend and it's it's trendy to support indigenous rights quote-unquote whatever the hell that means support uh, indigenous sovereignty what does that mean when we see it whether we see it in reports whether we see it from politicians or whether we see it from our hip friend on instagram who's <laughs> telling us to support indigenous rights or whatever but we're not actually talking about what does that logistically mean what does indigenous sovereignty actually look like within a governmental context in a social cultural context in a city planning context And so I would like to maybe take a moment to dive into some indigenous futurism talk around how do we actually logistically implement indigenous sovereignty and get it out of either the ivory tower or get it out of these government papers, get it out of our social social media networking and really bring it into this conversation and ground these buzz terms so that we're not just throwing them out, throwing them out, throwing them out, and then more and more people want to cling on to them because it makes them feel connected to something yeah i guess that's the second part of the question do you see groups actually implementing these promises well maybe we could talk about some of them maybe we could talk about some of the ones that aren't working but yeah i really do want to ground into what does indigenous sovereignty indigenous rights indigenous leadership within the climate movement within the global movement actually look like for both of you individually maybe jade you can start because you're already rolling in this yeah i think you're right to point out there's what you say as like what does that really mean and do people re- like really get that i think there we're still caught up in some we're still grappling with like romanticization of of indigenous peoples and communities and fetishizing our role. I think I I see that um, a lot in the climate justice movement and it's not talked about enough. Julian, please build on this because you just wrote a pretty dope article on how the environmental movement needs to face its racism. But um, I think that's one of the barriers. So I'm not answering the question just yet because I want to name some of those barriers that aren't that are, yeah, just just that. They're challenges in, in getting to this place where we can really honor what sovereignty, what self-determination, what indigenous rights mean. I just want to build on what Jade just said because I think it's so true. And I've been a little bit guilty of producing some of the propaganda that leads to this <laughs> viewpoint. But, um, you know, there are lots of different types of stereotypes about indigenous peoples. You know, some of the more problematic ones are about our people being, you know, quote-unquote savages or barbarians. Um, But there's also, you know, an equally deep history of outsiders, people like, you know, the French philosopher Rousseau um, viewing us as, like, sort of, quote-unquote, noble savages, right? And one of the sort of related stereotypes around that is that, like, indigenous peoples are, like, the first environmentalists or the first conservationists. And while there is obviously a great deal of truth to the fact that our knowledge systems, our philosophies, our cosmologies, our economies were rooted in direct relationships with the land, with the water, because they they had to be. You know, I think that that idea can get taken to unhelpful extremes, wherein it becomes, in another way, still difficult to actually see Native people as people, and we become sort of this, like, fetishized caricature of you know like the avatars in like in that yeah yeah and um you know i mean i grew up in the bay area and there's obviously a fair amount of fair amount of that kind of thinking that happens in the bay area and it's not completely unhelpful because it can be a pathway for people to get more interested in our cultures and to learn more and to turn to us more which i think then will help them see us more as full and honestly often complicated people but you know i think 
that as an endpoint is not where we want to be. And I think this is where culture and media and literature and film, you know, all these ways in which you have to see people not as two-dimensional signifiers, but as three-dimensional real-life beings can be really helpful. So, for example, you know, I grew up in Oakland. Last year, Tommy Orange wrote a Pulitzer Prize finalist book about urban Native people in Oakland. New York Times bestseller, uh, really remarkable book, and pretty much none of it had anything to do with, and he even has a line in it, a very memorable sort of passage where he talks about, you know, how for him, like his relationship to place and land as a native person had, had very little to do with mountains and streams and wildlife and ancient teachings, and instead had a lot more to do with, you know, city blocks and the BART and that sort of rhythm of of life and place and i think that you know that kind of uh conversation and realization was really helpful for people because actually like the majority of native people live in cities and people probably don't really realize or or know that so what's your thoughts on on this i don't know this might be straying from the original question but i think that point just underscores something else that's really that's going to be really important to unpack and dissect and and it makes things all the more complex but yeah like native peoples aren't like just rural peoples they're urban and they live in the burbs and so I think there's just even for ourselves you know in designing yeah what what is just transition look for our own communities like we have to be thinking on all those all those levels of rural urban in between and it's complex we ourselves are dealing with a lot of internal stuff around our identities and the complexities there so it's yeah I think it's just all relevant to the conversation just because yeah we're all seeing these changes together and experiencing them and um there's yeah there's just when you say like communities need to come together and work for you know this just transition together like that it's so it's so complicated and I I just you know want to push back on this idea that all native peoples are just like out there building (laughs) amazing solutions like we are you know there's so much complex stuff within within our own tribal nations within you know we're trying to get in some cases trying to decolonize our own tribal governments because they're often sometimes not on our sides not on the side of you know whatever climate justice approach or strategy there is there's some tribes that are way backwards so there's just a lot of politics there and yeah I'm like I said I think I might be straying off in in a new direction um, and adding more complexity to the conversation but that's it's it's there and it's real Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that I guess, like, humans are complicated and, like, you know, people who survived a genocide are just as complicated as as anyone else. And I think that that becomes especially relevant in a political and organizing kind of context because, you know, to effectively organize people, to inspire people, to reach people, I think you have to meet them where they're at. And, you know, I think that one of the mistakes that can happen in a number of different ideological and social and political and cultural contexts is that there can be, you know, we can preach to a choir that's not actually the singers who we think they are. And I think that, you know, in order to, I mean, for example, like Jade and I do a lot of stuff on the Internet and Native people are like intensely, I would say, online, like my dad who's just turned 60 this year is like one of the most online people I know and you know if we were like pretending that like the best way to reach them was through non-digital means or whatever I think we'd be missing a whole bunch of the community and so I think that like that kind of empirical realistic assessment of where people are at and how complicated things are is really important to actually create you know, strategies and networks and relationships that are grounded in the truth. Yeah. This is the juice that I was looking for. Because like I said, it's really easy to sit in a 20 minute keynote and walk away being like, yeah, like we have the solution and we got it and people are going to do these things. 
But then when you walk away from that and you start to really unravel what it would take and what what does a just transition actually look like and for who, who's the externality. And also what I'm hearing too is the people who are going to protect their land are the people who have a hell of willpower and a lot of creativity and a lot of willingness to be flexible and nimble and continue shifting tactics and strategies. And yeah, it's, I don't like the word sad necessarily, but knowing that not everybody will win, even in a Green New Deal, even in a quote, just transition, not everybody will win. And having to take that in is, I think, really important for those of us, especially that want to be involved, want to be engaged, want to be supportive to communities and earth communities, human and otherwise, for us to know both sides of the story. Because I can say that I, for too long, see that people who are so willing to learn get sold one side constantly. And then think about all of the energy, the resource of energy, love, money, time that goes into things that are not discussed clearly. I was just going to say, I think the reason my train of thought is kind of just like waxing and waning because it's a nice Sunday (laughs) and I'm feeling kind of mellow. But um, I was just going to say the reason why I I brought up this complexity of like our communities and our identities is because just like you're saying, the just transition is going to look different for every single community that's designing one. I've in the last three years have moved back to my my homelands, my ancestral homelands, and I'm often on the road for the work that I do, but my experience in being in that place and reconnecting with that place-based knowledge has been, I mean, I know what I want, like I so clearly know what I want in the next like five, ten years, and to design a just transition for myself and for my community, and I've understood how my specific skills in media and media production, media like art, can help with cultural revitalization or language preservation. And yeah, it, it's taking that localization to really make it real for me. And I think that's um, not everyone has the privilege of going back to their homelands. But I think, yeah, there's something there about going back to small community um, and prioritizing that as, as we learn to have some sort of balance in our lives during the climate crisis yes I want global indigenous like that's a futurism for sure that I like envision is just like global understanding of indigenous rights and uh, solidarity but when I imagine like into the future of what a just transition or climate justice looks for me it's very specific to my community I really loved hearing you say questioning what a just transition is for jade because that's something really unique that i actually haven't heard usually when i hear just transition it feels really out there it doesn't feel internal and it doesn't feel like i'm hearing it what does it look like for me as a person what does it look like for my local community what does it look for my township what does it look for my state and really expanding out from the person first but the elections are really right around the corner and for those of us who are media makers are narrative producers it's important for us to think about that now because it feels like it's going to come up so quickly and it does make a difference we've seen what the last election did it makes our involvement is really important but I do think that people have become so bamboozled by the political mumbo-jumbo, I'll use those words as well, (laughs) that, you know, I want to really speak to those folks in this conversation right now and be like, yeah, I want to kind of hear like meta view election thoughts, and then maybe some specifics that you want to throw in for us, whether that's state specific things, whether that's certain resource extraction projects, whether that's certain candidates to watch. Yeah, I really just want to dive into this because I know you both are seeing it from a really strategic vantage point. My meta view on elections is that they matter a lot. 
and that there was for a long time, I think, on I identify as a lefty, as a leftist, I guess. And I think for a long time there was an aversion to party politics and 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 electoral politics as not where the primary work should be put. But I think that if anything, 2016 and then the election of you know a number of really strong progressives, most most notably like. AOC and the squad in 2018, you know, off the back of Bernie's 2016 presidential run, I think to me has really emphasized the importance of the party as a vehicle for politics and as a vehicle to organize and engage a large number of people. I think numbers at the end of the day do matter. Our ability to shape and influence policy and laws and to move resources around that do matter a lot. So, yeah, I mean, I think elections matter. And then the second part of that as a journalist and someone who's involved in the media is that the people who basically are going to choose who the next president are uh, as politics becomes increasingly national are the folks who book uh, cable news and uh, for the For the Wild podcast, right? Like it's the (laughs) it's media makers who are going to decide who the public gets to see and uh, who's in the consideration set and who wins the nomination and all that sort of thing. And obviously Donald Trump has made a career basically not really as a businessman, but as a media figure first in New York and now, you know, someone who's been able to manipulate the news cycle around his own Twitter feed and shenanigans constantly. And I think that to a large extent, if there is going to be someone who can effectively challenge and and beat him, they will also need to be able to create a convincing identity and narrative and um, source of inspiration that'll really get people to show up at rallies and show up to vote and do all that sort of thing. And you know, communications is sort of the most immediate way in which in which you do that. I mean, organizing obviously is really important too, but you know, the primary way in which a lot of these campaigns will reach people is is through the news. I mean, I don't have too much to add to that. It's pretty on point. I think I think the challenge that everyday folks like us are going to have to work with, navigate, is that there's going to be so much propaganda out there. We just have to be extremely discerning about what we consume, what we share, especially in the world of Twitter and, and social media. Julian and I <laughs> constantly are communicating about just, yeah, the shit that goes down on social media and how it's, it's tomfoolery. It's harmful, sometimes makes us take two steps back, you know. Um, it derails important narratives. So I just think in the lead up to the election, yeah, we just really got to be on it about does this message about this candidate or that candidate really support us as like the left or as whatever you want to identify as, as beating Trump? Or is it dividing the progressive left side? Because I definitely see more division going on, especially when we're talking about social media and like the messages that that world is sharing with each other cheering from the the crowd as jade punctuates her her thesis Never make it And we'll never, never break 
Well, the, about the divisiveness, I do want to talk about this a little bit more because, yeah, of course there's the divisiveness between the quote-unquote left and right. Of course there's that type of divisiveness, which I'm actually less interested in than the divisiveness that happens within the movement space, for instance. Like, the thing that's happening with Greta that I want to <laughs> I want to dive into as an example. Not that I think the Greta thing, I'm more interested to hear about your political views, but I just want to take that as an example because it was so widely seen by probably so many of the people listening to this podcast right now, where it's Greta came out, people thought she was a hero, but then what started happening was there was so much frustration around narrative that white European person was coming across the ocean to the, in a sailboat nonetheless Not yeah the, yeah exactly and and then it, and then coming to to colonize the thought process or whatever so there was all this this trauma and narrative frustration around that which I totally understand and at the same time then what I'm seeing on social media is all this anti-Greta rather than anti-Exxon Mobil, rather than anti the stuff that we are trying to fight for climate change sake. So how do we balance? Yeah, we do need to call out the narrative of Greta being the white savior. And we also need to stay really focused and not get divided within the movement because we need to be really organized right now. The choir needs to be tight not dispersed over things that aren't the bigger issue in the room but I also don't want to say that people shouldn't have been pissed about Greta but it's like how how many things can we be distracted by before we realize holy shit there's no more ice left but we are fighting about Greta and now it's really challenging around the divisiveness within the movement and Jade you had some amazing things to say about the Greta situation I remember like you were like yeah this is weird stuff this is weird white savior stuff and people let's not get it twisted because we only have so many posts that we can look at a day and when social media is confusing us even more than we already are confused it's not helpful so um yeah what was happening was the media was um centering Greta and what ended up happening unfortunately was the internet went into up uproar about this young white kid who was taking up all the space and my feedback that week was write the media like stop getting mad on the internet like what to Julian's point about how media is going to be an influencer like a huge influencer in who is elected write those publications to include more native folks more black folks whatever you know like it's we got super distracted and focused on I think it was a little identity politics I think it was also a conversation about representation and inclusion but we weren't talking about climate justice and we weren't holding those who do the centering who do who put Greta in that position we were just shooting the messenger basically and that's not going to help any of us at the end of the day so I think if we want to if we want to continue to see our folks and our frontline communities represented we need to hold those the institutions the media organizations the news accountable to do that for us yeah I couldn't agree with that more you know the people who decide who's quoted in the publications who's booked on cable news are not the speakers themselves usually it's the editors the reporters the publishers the producers and yeah my my thoughts on that situation are the same as jade's i guess i would also just say that like there are healthy types of conflict competition and tension and there's unhealthy kinds so right now we're in the middle of a a primary where we're going to decide who the democratic nominee is for president and in a lot of ways this is that creates a window wherein organizers activists movements can pressure the candidates to be better than each other and that's actually usually a very healthy kind of competition because it means that a lot of our demands that have been on the sort of fringe 
of what's politically possible are increasingly becoming embraced by, you know, broader number of leaders within the party. So, um, you know, Medicare for All is a very classic example of this, where, you know, Bernie was the only person who was talking about the fact that, you know, the government should be providing health care to every single resident of this country. Now that is becoming an increasingly common position for candidates to stake out on, on stage. And that's because they have to differentiate each other, from, differentiate themselves from each other, and also have to like try to keep up with being, you know, as good as one another. The same thing can happen with the Green New Deal and has happened with the Green New Deal. And I think that, you know, that that can just be repeated across a number of different issue areas and positions. And that can be ultimately a good thing. I think the questions here that are relevant are, are to go back to Jade's point, like who specifically should we be holding accountable? Like when we express our ire about something, who should that ire specifically be directed towards? And secondly, you know, how do you both hold tension in sort of community or among different, you know, professionals in a network or communities, et cetera, in a way that like doesn't erase the fact that there are tensions and that there, for example, in the space that I work, there is going to need to be a significant change in terms of representation and power and resources between white environmentalists and people of color in the movement. Like that is something that is an ongoing process and needs to continue. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, we need to blow up the whole situation and people should stop talking to each other and working with each other. And, you know, one group is completely off and always going to be sellouts, which is not to say that there aren't people who are like super problematic and taking up space and resources, but like, you know, these are complicated circumstances to navigate. And I just wish that the thing is, is that like social media, like runs on, very limited number of emotional responses like it's either like I'm gonna clap for this I'm gonna be angry at this or I'm gonna like laugh at it those are like really the only three emotions that happen on on the internet and the way that the algorithms and the platforms are sort of created uh, I think it often can incentivize and reward more or less like adults to do behave badly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to put it like pretty crudely like I think people get rewarded for being mean to each other far too often well people co- don't comment when they agree about something they give it like a like and woo. but like people comment when they disagree and there's crazy ass like comment threads when people are upset and want to vent about and rant about something and so that's what the algorithms are gonna reward so then those are the things you see highlighted on and you know pop up in your feed more and more those kind of divisive conversations on the internet that are they getting anyone anywhere I don't know (laughs) I just want to give you both this space to say anything that hasn't been said that feels alive in this moment whether it's about politics whether it's about digital organizing social media you know, anything that we've touched on today, but I just want to give you both the space to have a last thought before we close up shop. I think that this is a very troubling time, but it's also um, in some ways a very promising time. I see a lot of different organizations and movements rising to the challenge of the moment. And I think that you know, that kind of work needs support in the form of, you know, volunteering, in the form of donating, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, showing up to vote is important, but also like if there's a local, you know, if you're a young person who's involved in the climate movement, I think that like getting involved with the Sunrise Movement is like a smart thing to do. If you you know are engaged in like black lives matter then like there's a number of different organizations like byp 100 that are doing great work wherever you are there's certainly like an indigenous community and i'm sure that they're still fighting to protect their rights and their land and their water and all that sort of stuff and figuring out ways to support them respectfully i think is really worthwhile so uh you know at the end of the day like not everyone has all the time to give you know some people just have like an hour or two to give every week but like with that hour or two that you can give to that this kind of work doing that in a strategic and 
thoughtful and impactful way, I think it can make a, a big difference when a lot of people are doing that. You had asked a question earlier, Ayana, about do we know any groups that are modeling some of this this work around sovereignty, around self-determination, and um, showing us what that looks like. A few groups that come to mind are Thunder Valley CDC. I also admire the work that the Black Mesa Water Coalition does um, in creating self-determination in the form of having food sovereignty in revitalizing traditions and around like infrastructure like building hogans and and bringing the language back and things like that also yeah i do want to uplift the work that ndn collective is doing because it's really it's really changing the game in philanthropy and putting the data in people's face that 0.3% of philanthropy is given to indigenous communities and when we have the IPC telling us IPCC telling us that our knowledge is critical for the moment we're in um, that number 0.3% is it's crazy we need to change that we need to drastically change the way we give and donate and give direct funding to indigenous communities so um, yeah look into the NDN Collective, share our programming, share the grants and fellowships that we're uh, creating and providing. And who else? Follow Jade Begay <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram and all the platforms. And follow Julian. I already say it all the time anyway, but yeah, <laughs> can't not miss out on what this guy is saying. Well, I can say that for both these fine people sitting next to me right now. Stylish intelligent you know I'm feeling pretty lucky this has been a beautiful conversation that we have been sharing with these ducks geese seabirds under this willow tree thank you all for tuning in to for the wild podcast live at Bioneers 2019 and uh, stay tuned because we are gonna have both Julian and Jade back on for some not with duck conversations <laughs> soon so bye everyone love you much thank you for listening to for the wild podcast i'm ayana young the music you heard today was from sea stars and the ancient wild I'd like to thank our wonderful team, Aidan McRae, Andrew Storrs, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassfell, Hannah Wilton, Melanie Younger, and Suzanne Dollywall. Sweet smell the pines, tall western cedar, drifting on the wind.